Thank you, Amber. I'd like to welcome you to the warm fellowship. It's something to wake up and we're back in winter. It took me a long time to get my car warmed up for the long commute here, but I made it. And I'm glad you guys are here too. You can read the announcements in the bulletin, but the one thing to highlight is next week's fellowship lunch. It's Mexican dishes, so you can coordinate with whoever coordinates it. I don't get involved in it except for the quality control at, at the end. I'm glad that you are here to worship the Lord. And let's turn to the scripture reading. It's in Mark chapter 4. That's right after Mark chapter 3 in your Bible. And we're going to start in verse 35, Lord willing. Yep. Okay, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. That's a good admonition to us. Has Jesus done anything for you? Tell somebody. God has put us all into spheres of influence, in a circle of friends and family, relatives, workers, and we can be the person to tell people that will never come to church, never listen to a pastor, but they will listen to us, or at least hear us, when we say, this is who I was, and this is what Jesus Christ did for me. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was a sinner, but now I'm saved. Would you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ like I have? However God has wired you, he's wired me differently to share my testimony in my own way. He's done that for you too. Just be yourself and tell your loved ones, tell the people you bump into, wherever you meet people, tell them what Jesus has done. Paul, Wayne, and I were having coffee at the Oaks a week or so ago. The guy serving me coffee said, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. He said, why would you become a pastor? And I said, I was a forester and a missionary challenged me. Jesus died for you. What are you doing for him? And I said, thank you. You destroyed my career. I'm making two-by-fours for Jesus. I need to go to Africa and plant trees for Jesus. And he led me into the ministry. The guy said, oh, cool. He op God opened up an opportunity for me like that demon-possessed man to say what Jesus had done for me in a brief way. If I can do it, you can do it much better. Thank you, Andy, for reading our Life of Christ reading this morning. It is truly a marvel. I like that passage where it says even the wind and sea obey him and he put this man in his right mind it is something for us to marvel about and to have our minds renewed as we think about Jesus Christ I want to give you an opportunity to do that now as we prepare to continue our worship of Christ this day I'll let you do so by private prayer where you're at and prepare yourself to worship Christ today and I'll read our meditation and memory verse for this week it's from Psalm 96 a beautiful psalm which calls us to sing out to this Lord to sing out a new song and I'll read that for us as I close us in prayer but I'd like for you to pray privately to prepare your heart so if you'll open and then I'll let us go to the Lord in prayer.
Our Father, what a great privilege it is to truly know that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and the Most High. I pray we would recognize his sovereign control over all things, regardless of whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in, to see that displayed in his control over the evil one and evil things and able to change things dramatically. We, we often think that just calming the storm might be a great miracle, but to put us in the right mind, to truly know Jesus Christ as Lord, what an incredible miracle that you've done in our heart. And so we thank you for that. We call you to continue that, to use our proclamation of your truth, to go forward, to accomplish what you will, to bring great encouragement to your people, to bring conviction where it's necessary, to call us to be conformed into the image of your Son, and give us through the power of the Holy Spirit the ability to, to do so, to truly to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to truly by the Spirit to bring about fruit which abounds to your glory. I pray now as we gather to worship and hear the little children even sing this day, I pray that you will receive this as an offering of praise to your holy name. I pray that we would be a people who cherish you to where that is the thoughts of our heart to, to respond in great praise for who you are, what you have done, and what you have promised to do. Give us faith to believe and give us patience to wait for you to accomplish your tasks in the way that is absolutely perfect and best. May our trust in you continue. And with the psalmist, we, we pray this, Lord. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the people. And may this message be new on our lips this day to sing and tell of the glory of your grace. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And don't forget to pray for Blake. Because if you see me up here, then he needs some prayer. Because <laughs> he's either traveling or he's sick. <laughs> it's the latter. So let's all stand and turn to number 32 in our hymnals. Oh, come Christians, join to sing number 32. Oh, come let us sing to the Lord, Psalm 95. One.
Turn to number 660. Onward, Christian soldiers, 660. change the hymn because he doesn't know the next one. Yeah, the next but one. But I thought I'd interject too oh, in okay. thinking of this song here since we have the responsive reading in front of us and we haven't turned it yet. You could be the worship leader and I can be the participant. <clears throat> I think this is a good thing when we sing a song like this. It sounds quite militant and it should be. You need to fight Satan and demons. We don't see them they're immaterial. We see their influence in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. And it's good to be conscious of that. This text here loosely follows from Psalm 20 and a little bit from Ephesians 6. Good section to think about. And where that imagery is emphasized about putting on the armor of God. And do so daily. Because the devil is like a roaring lion 
seeking whom he might devour. So we'll read this responsibly together before we move to our next hymn, which I don't know what it's going to be, do you? 237. 237 will be your new hymn that we're <coughs> doing. So let's do this responsive reading together. You'll be the worshipers, I'll be the participant, and you're the leader. All right. All right. Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. This is why you must take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist the devil day, the evil day, and having prepared everything to take your stand. In every situation, take the shield of faith. And with it, you'll be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. With every prayer and request, pray at all times in the Spirit. And stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for the saints, all the saints. May the Lord answer you in a day of trouble. He will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories from his right hand. Amen. Amen. Two thirty seven, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene.
Good morning, church. Today's reading is found in Acts chapter 5, verses 4. Sorry, Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 37. The Pew Bible number, page number is 912. For the context's sake, let us recap. Uh, last week, after Peter's great sermon at Pentecost in chapter 2, and in the first verse, part of chapter 4, thousands of foreign Jews were saved. We read of a lame man being miraculously healed and how the apostles preached the gospel boldly and were subsequently released. Let's start verse 23. When the apostles were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And now he quotes Psalm number two. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed? For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought their proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as they had any need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a, nat a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it to the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be able to read your precious word. We thank you for the boldness of your apostles in this chapter and their care for the needy believers. Help us not to be ashamed of you as we interact with the world this week. We thank you that we have been transformed and are new creatures in Christ. 
We pray for Pastor Wayne as he opens your word today. Please help us to prepare to engage in exegetical listening. We also pray for the unsaved who may be present here today, that through the preaching of your word and the presence of your Holy Spirit, that they would be convicted of sin and repent. We thank you for your faithfulness, that we can always trust in you. You are an abundant God, and out of your great mercy, you have given us so much. We give you this offering today. With it, we worship you and give our whole selves to you. Please take it and use it for the extension of your kingdom and your glory. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Jesus said, suffer the little children to come to me, that I might bless them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Thank you, children. Thank you, Amanda, Amber, as well, for leading. We're looking forward to you guys singing again for Resurrection Sunday, also known as Easter. I think Jesus said that because in their culture, the children were often set aside. Not prominent, not important, not to be brought up. But they also illustrate the the beauty of of faith, of, of simple faith, of belief. 
is what we're called to do, and that is to trust, to believe. As we get older and have various life's experiences, that could be more difficult. But I assure you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can truly believe. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Coincidentally, or providentially, (laughs) however you might think of it, our primary focus last week was on faith from 6.12 in Hebrews. We added along with that, that the idea of patience, and that can be the most difficult thing about belief or faith, is to truly have patience. And 6.12 gives the, the, the fulfillment of that in the idea that we're to believe and to, to wait on God for what? For his promise, for his to fulfill all that he has promised. A promise has been made to his people by God. And that promise is more than just redemption in the sense of a removal of the guilt of your sin and the condemnation that comes about. That removal was done by the Lord Jesus Christ. He removes the just consequences of eternal wrath, that in and of itself would be more than enough for a response of great praise, as we're called to in Psalm 96, for us to have great eternal joy, to not be under the wrath of God, to be redeemed from that. But if that's all you understand, you have missed something certainly as big, as glorious, and that is the positive side and what he has promised to those that have faith and wait on him. A book, my, one of my favorites, because it's so compact in how it declares this truth, and yet it is sufficient enough to give us a great image of it, and I'll bring it up from time to time. I don't mind. It's Ephesians, and particularly in the first chapter. Ephesians chapter 1, I'll read it for you. You can look at it if you wish, and then we'll be back to Hebrews 6. By the way, if I, and I like devotions. I, I subscribe to them now by email. I must get at least a half a dozen every day, well-written, and they're good because it'll give you a scripture verse and say something about it, spend time devotionally into it. It's just something I enjoy. But one of the greatest devotions that you can ever read is just to simply read God's Word. And a good source for that to spend some devotional time in, by the way, is Ephesians. The whole book, and particularly the first half. And this section I want to look at, it is verse 16. I'll read it for you. Where Paul looks to the church to to remind them 
of the promise that they have in God. He says, I, I, I don't cease to give thanks for you, verse 16 of chapter 1 in Ephesians, remembering you in my prayers. And what is he remembering? What is the source and substance of it? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him. That's how it comes about. To, To see the significance of what is being communicated, this is a supernatural work of God's grace. And it comes about through the proclamation of it and the prayers of God's people through the work of the Holy Spirit. To Verse 18, to have your eyes of your heart, if you will, enlightened, so that what? So that you will know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's the big thing. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might? that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and then seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Do you know him? Yes, hallelujah. Praise him. And that's my prayer for myself and for you as well. This is the inheritance, this glorious inheritance, this hope, which we'll touch on in Hebrews. Not an idea of wishful thinking, but an absolute certainty. There are many in our day that think that they are in charge and they know what's going on and what's best, enough to where they wish to tell everyone else that. (laughs) But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This glorious inheritance, beyond what you could imagine, is a message to the people of God. It's an admonition, if you will, to engage in your spiritual maturity, your spiritual growth, so that you may grasp this concept and understand it. It is helpful to have those whom we can follow after, imitate, as the scriptures talk about in Hebrews. Imitate, 6.12, those who have received the promises of God through faith and patience. We must believe God. We must believe him also to bring that about in his own time, in the way that he desires to do it, because that is what is good and that is what is best. It's hard to wait. It's one of the most difficult things that we have if we have a certain expectation of whatever it might be, to wait, to have those promises fulfilled, those expectations in our life. So in order to do this, we're going to need to grow in grace 
and in the knowledge of the Lord. Increasing our faith to patiently persevere. We touched on God's plan to bring this about in time. As I mentioned, the promise that God makes is simply a revelation of his decree. His plan set forth before time began. God has already decreed, we would say, whatever is to come to pass. The book that you have before you, God's Holy Word, is a revelation of not every aspect of that decree. It, it, we wouldn't be able to uh, write enough of that down, certainly. But what he has written down is sufficient for us to have faith and wait and believe. He is revealed to us his secret will, and that is recorded in the scriptures. This is what he has chose to make known that is sufficient for us to be godly. In our text in Hebrews chapter 6, the preacher has linked this now to Abraham and what we call the Abrahamic covenant. God has made a promise he has revealed that in his word, a promise that will be fulfilled, an agreement or a covenant made with a person, a historical person by the name of Abraham. And we talked a bit last week about that reality of that relationship and how God fulfilled those things that he promised in time with Abraham. But today we want to focus, expand that a little bit more to point out that it's not just what he did and promised and fulfilled in time. It is what he is, what Abraham represents, we would call it typologically. He points to what God will do and has promised, which is not tangible to us physically. This explanation in Ephesians about this glorious inheritance. We can think of an inheritance as, as, a, as a piece of dirt, land, maybe a house or two on it, maybe gold and jewels and other riches and things. We can think of it in a physical, tangible way, but what God has promised is far superior. It is eternal, and it is of greater value. But Abraham helps to illustrate that. In fact, that is his point, to then follow those who, by what? Faith and patience, waited for God to fulfill and did believe that he would fulfill his promises. We'll flesh that out a bit with the time remains. For now, let's see it in its context, Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll begin at verse 13. Hebrews six thirteen. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. 
For the people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray. I pray with the Apostle Paul for the saints of this day as he prayed in that, that indeed we would truly know this hope, that our eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would truly know, that we would know what you have called us to and what are the provisions that you have granted to us in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, we would also know the power the power of, of who you are in conforming us to the image of your Son. And might we trust you for it? And power in Christ that can speak and calm the sea. And power in which you've demonstrated in resurrecting your Son from the dead to live forever and to function in a mediatorial way for us, even right now. I pray, Father, may we grow in that grace and knowledge of you. And give us faith to truly believe and patience to wait for the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ our Lord. And even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. In our text, verse 14, notice the statement of God's promise. We addressed this last week. Surely I will bless you and multiply you, as spoken to Abraham. You can find that in Genesis 12, 17, and 22, fleshed out. Remember, God promised that which was impossible from our perspective. <laughs> Abraham was called then to believe and to wait for God to fulfill his promises. He does this first in demonstration by granting him a, a son in his old age. He just makes him get a little older before he lets him have it. God does bless him, and he does fulfill this in many respects of making him the father of a great nation. But if you remember as we went through that, and you can find it back in those texts or listen to last week, he's included in that promise was a promise to bless not only 
Abraham and his descendants, but all nations. Genesis 12, 3, I'll read it for you. I will bless those who bless you and dishonors, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the note, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is a physical aspect to this covenant promise which God does fulfill. But beyond that, how are all the families of the earth going to be blessed? That points to the spiritual aspect in which this promise is made. Theologically, we call these types. Abraham serves as a type or an example of those who will inherit the promise by faith and patience, as our text says in verse 12. He serves as a type pointing to something greater as well as an example. The Baker Encyclopedia gives a brief definition I'll read for you on type because I think it's important to us to understand what this is biblically. The idea of a type in Scripture is a branch of biblical interpretation, says Baker, in which an element found in the Old Testament prefigures one in the new. The key is there, prefigures. See, it's before. The initial one is called the type, and the fulfillment is the antitype. Either type or antitype may be a person, a thing, or an event. But often, and I would say very often and most assuredly, the type is messianic and frequently refers to salvation. And they give a warning, and I think this is a good one to note. In working with types then in the Old Testament, so that you just don't go off into uncharted territory, the safest procedure is to limit them to those expressly mentioned in the Bible. And that's what we're doing here with Abraham and with the time permitting, I'm going to show you from Scripture how Abraham is brought up again and again, not just for this physical promise that was actually fulfilled and accomplished, but pointing to something that is immaterial, something spiritual, something that he points to in which all nations will be blessed. And Scripture does authoritatively flesh that type out. Also, in how it's mentioned here in our text, surely, this statement here, that, that word, surely, I will bless you and multiply you. This extra warrant, A.W. Pink in his very helpful commentary, which I've, I've actually enjoyed, he does a good job in not being so technical that you'll get off track, but, but uh, scholarly enough and deep enough to, to examine what he's saying, he makes a good point here about this idea of surely found here in Hebrews 6.14. It is a quotation, of course, from Genesis 22.17. 
And in his analysis, he says, these are the, the first two occurrences in Holy Writ. He's speaking of Genesis 22 compared to Genesis 2, 2.17 compared to 22.17. He says, these are the first two occurrences in Holy Writ of which this unusual form of speech, they stand in great antithesis to one another. You remember Genesis 2.17? Does that ring a bell? That tells Adam, the day you eat of that tree, you will what? Surely die. Here in Genesis 22.17, God says, the opposite of a curse. I will, what? Surely bless you. Now, I think he has a strong point there that they should be compared in that way. The first one, and at the very least, the wording is there, and I think intentionally so, to draw the attention to it. The first is a sure curse. The second is a sure blessing, and both of them are absolute. He'll go on to say that one, that's the first one in Genesis 2.17, the curse, was a sentence of ir- irrevocable doom. Surely you will die. The other was a promise of irreversible bliss. Now they compare and contrast. Each was uttered to an individual who stood as the head of a representative of a family, upon members of the curse, and the blessings fell. Each head sustained a double relationship. Adam was the head of the entire human family, and the condemnation for his sin has been imputed to all his descendants. You find that in Romans, particularly Romans chapter 5. It is through one man, Adam, all sin. That's Adam in the sense of he is our representative of humanity. But in a narrower sense, he'll go on to say that Adam, in a sense, in a narrow sense, is the head of the non-elect. Those who um, not only share his condemnation but partake of his sinful nature, and then will suffer eternal doom. Surely you will die. In like manner, Abraham was the head of a natural family. That is, all who descended from him, they share in the temporal blessings that God had promised their father. But in a narrower sense, and this is where he's comparing and contrasting with Adam, In a narrower sense, Abraham is a type of Christ as the everlasting father, Isaiah 9, 6, and Isaiah 53. And from our text in Hebrews, remember in chapter 2 and verse 13, he talks about Jesus being given children and thus functions in that fatherly role. He was the head of God's elect, Abraham, that seed, who were made partakers of faith 
performers of his work, and participants of spiritual and eternal blessings. Two families in this way in which Scripture compares and contrasts that of Adam, those who are cursed, and those who are of Abraham, by faith, who are blessed. The temporal blessings wherewith God blessed Abraham, God blessed Abraham in all things, Genesis 24 and following, were typical, and this is where we're getting to, he's typical of the spiritual blessings wherewith God has blessed Christ. And so too the earthly inheritance guaranteed unto Abraham's seed was a figure and pledge of the heavenly inheritance which pertains to Christ's seed. This phrase then, surely, blessing, I will bless thee, is significant to all peoples. In blessing Abraham, God blessed all the heirs of promise. And then he pledges himself to bestow on them what he swore to give to them. This is what we mean by typological uh, construction in the Old Testament, which prefigures and points to a truth. I see it this way, is, is here you're dealing with a physical reality that is demonstrated in time to point to that spiritual or immaterial reality which might be harder to grasp. So Abraham then has offspring in that narrow sense, those who are children of God. Now I'm going to go through a couple texts of Scripture to demonstrate this, but if you're still in Hebrews, you can just go back to the second chapter, Hebrews chapter 2. Because here the preacher in Hebrews understands this concept of this head, federal head in a sense, of Adam contrasted with Abraham. And he makes the point, he's not going to flesh it out here, but he does make the point, I think, that fits well. He says, verse 16 of chapter 2, it's not angels that he helps. So who does he help? He helps the offspring of Abraham. What, just his physical offspring? No, his spiritual offspring, as he, is, um, as he typifies those that are of the spiritual seed. And speaking of Christ, he says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. By the way, that, that is going to be a main theme throughout uh, this uh, book of Hebrews, uh, and it, this chapter ended again emphasizing that Jesus Christ is that mediator for that spiritual seed. Nevertheless, what, what did he do then to bring about offspring of Abraham? He made propitiation for the sins of the people. What people? Heirs of the promise. Offspring of Abraham in that sense. I'm going to demonstrate this from a few texts, and we'll see how time permits, because this is a constant theme throughout Scripture. 
But just to show you a couple passages that directly point to this and might help clarify, first I invite you to turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians, chapter 3. Here Paul is dealing with a church that they were also trying to grab elements of the law. It was part of their culture, no doubt. And he points to the idea of faith. And in his argument, he brings up Abraham. And you'll find that in verse 7 of chapter 3. He says, know then that it is those who are, and see the word, faith, who are sons of Abraham. Did Abraham have physical sons? Did he, was he a father of a great physical nation? Yes, but he serves as a type of those who have faith and patience in God and therefore are identified in that way as sons of Abraham. It is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture then, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Scripture, remember, is just the proclamation of God's decree that he would bless what? Who? The nations, other ethnic groups, not just Abraham's physical seed, but beyond that, that he would justify the Gentiles. How? By faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And what was the gospel? Did you hear it? In you shall all the nations be blessed. The gospel isn't a new thing. It's, it's what God has always promised to do. It's just unfolding in time. It's revealed to Abraham when he hears this, in you, all, in you shall all the nations be blessed. How would they be blessed? By faith. Verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, one who functions as a real example to imitate faith and patience. Believe God and receive the blessing that is far greater than you could ever imagine. Look at verse 10. Here, again, he's challenging them because they were, they being the Galatians, like the Hebrews were tempted to do, wanted to engage in various rituals as if that somehow connected you to God. In some cases, they looked at their, their own blood. In other words, their biological connection to Abraham. That wasn't sufficient for an eternal communion with God. It would have to be far greater. Because in, in, engaging in these rituals through the law, the law is good and perfect. The problem is you're not. Because you're a seed of Adam. You need to be a seed of Abraham. And how would that come about? One way, through faith in God. Verse 10, those who then rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who doesn't abide by all, and you can read every, 
thing written in the book of the law and do them. And again, here's where I'll challenge a lot of people who think that they're a good person, that God won't hold them accountable because they try really hard and for the most part keep most of moral law and what they should do. Can I tell you this? You have to keep it all. If you're guilty in one point, you're guilty at all. You, you are of the seed of Adam. You are cursed by default. And surely you will die. So what will you do? The, the law is right and law is just. The law is good. You're not. So what would you do? Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one then is justified before God by the law. Can't be. Can't, God can't declare you righteous by your own law keeping, by your own morality, by your own goodness. No matter how good it is, it's going to fall short of the glory of God. That is, the perfections that are in God. You're not perfect. There is only one. It's Jesus Christ. So put your faith in him. And the quotation here is then, those that are righteous, those, those who are righteous, live by faith. Faith in what? Christ. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Here's the one you have faith in, Christ. Verse 13, who redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. He took on our penalty. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And indeed, that's exactly how he died. And took our curse, received by our federal head, Adam, on himself. So that why? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of who? See it? Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The blessings of God through Abraham coming to the Gentiles because of this one person, Jesus Christ. Drop down to verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We're not making this up. This is God's revelation of truth. And this is why, again, I say, if you want to find something that is a type and it points to something, it, it's, it's really helpful to see it phrased this way in Scripture, then you know for sure. This, this blessing that is surely promised to Abraham's offspring, if you're in Christ, you are heir according to what? The promise that God has made. I think I have time to go through one more text, maybe, just because I want you to see it. And there's multiple, but let me just go to one more that's really clear, and that's back to Romans chapter 4. Remember, Paul is writing to the church at Rome. He does quite an exhaustive 
explanation of, of the gospel. And in it, he points back to this same type, that is Abraham, the offspring, this promise that God made that in him all nations would be blessed. And for time, we'll just drop down to verse 13 of chapter 4 of Romans. Note here, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heirs of the world didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That corresponds to everything we just said, doesn't it? For if it is the uh, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. In other words, the promise wouldn't work out because you can't, in of your own self, keep the law through the flesh. So God's promise would be void. God intended all the time to, the, to this to be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. The law brings wrath. There is no law, there's no transgression. That's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace, that is God's unmerited favor given, and that he may grant to all his offsprings, not only to the adherent of the law, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is, note, what does it say? Father of us all. The connection? How? As is written. I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence that which doesn't exist. God demonstrates it physically to, to help us understand what he does spiritually. Isn't that a great encouragement to proclaim the truth of Christ and the gospel he said, well, how will I ever convince somebody? You're not going to, but God can, and he will. He brings to existence those things that don't exist. He can speak, and the worlds come into existence. He can speak, and the worlds will stop. Do you know him? Do you know God? And he, and he demonstrates, because he, he, he does this as an exemplar for us to know, in, in hope, he, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been promised. So shall your offspring be. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since it was 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. That's the faith we need, beloved. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's what faith is, believing God. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written. It was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. Verse 23, but whose also? Ours. Put your name right there. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's how you will be just or righteous before God. And the scripture calls us then back in Hebrews chapter 6 
to not be sluggish. Don't be lazy. Imitate instead, 6.12, of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Verse 15 of chapter 6 in Hebrews, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. God fulfilled physically what he had promised to Abraham. But Abraham had a, a greater promise to come in which he didn't inherit in that life. Hebrews 11 speaks of that. All of them died in faith, not having received the things promised, or you say the fullness of what has been promised. What was promised? What I started with. The unsearchable riches of glory in Christ Jesus. The very presence of God in the fullness of joy. In this life, you're not going to inherit that glorious promise. You only inherit it when Christ comes or when you go to Christ. In the meantime, you acknowledge that you're a stranger and exile on this earth until we have the eternal reward in Christ Jesus. God does provide exemplars of faith, and Abraham serves in that way. But back to our text in Hebrews 6, I want you to note one other thing, and that is something that probably doesn't even need to be pointed out, but yet, graciously, God does it for us. And that is the certainty or the truth and truthfulness of this promise. It's typified, of course, in Abraham. But now we're made aware and disclosed the certainty of this promise that are those, for those that are in Christ Jesus. This is what God does in condescending really to us. Look at verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 6. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is the final for confirmation. There's a saying I remember hearing one time, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And I understand that sentiment. But the fact whether you believe it or not really is immaterial. <laughs> if God said it, it is. Whether you believe it or not, the sum of his truth, every one of them, every one of them endures forever. Psalm 119, 160. Because God doesn't change. What would he change into? Something better? Something worse? He can't. He's God. In the Jewish culture, they swore by a lot of things in a superficial way. They'd swear by the temple. They'd swear by other religious objects and so forth. But ultimately, as Jesus explained to them, when you're swearing by these material objects, ultimately you're swearing by the throne of God who created them all. Because God ultimately is the highest authority. In our culture, we might hear someone take an oath or uh, 
swear in that sense of taking a pledge. And they'll say what? Oh, help me, God. Because they recognize the ultimate authority. The highest authority is God. Statements like that in our culture and, their, and in their culture <coughs> were used to emphasize the sincerity of the statement. It implies a greater care than usual in the act of performance of somebody's duties, like an oath of office, for example, giving testimony to an event, facts of matter in a court of law. It implies a greater degree of seriousness and obligation than just a casual conversation or a statement. But the preacher of Hebrews in verse 13 emphasizes this, that when God made a promise to Abraham, think about it, he had no one greater by whom to swear, so he swore by himself. There is no higher authority. So when God makes a promise, it is of the utmost significance. It is the utmost significance because his promise can't change. Numbers 23, 19, God's not a man. God's not a man that he would lie. Or the son of man that he would change his mind, as I mentioned. Who would he change it to? He couldn't be lesser. He couldn't be greater. He's God. He has said it, and he will do it. Paul affirmed that as well in Titus chapter 1, where he talks about our hope of eternal life, Titus 1, 2, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at a proper time, manifested his word through the preaching, which I've been entrusted by, the command of God our Savior. It's an authoritative message because it doesn't find its origin in the messenger. It's in the very mouth of God, who never lies, who promised all of this before the ages began. Remember, I said all, all this revelation of it is simply a revelation of his eternal decree. Our hope, then, that we would have in God is ultimately, then, not based on our ability even our ability to believe, it is in his very word of promise. Find yourself discouraged in your own lack of faith. Don't fret, beloved. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. God cannot break his promise, Second Timothy 2.13. This is why you would persevere to begin with. This is why we would teach, yes, you cannot lose your salvation. Because Jesus Christ himself has said, I will raise them up on the last day. And why will I be raised up on the last day? Because I'm a good and faithful man? No. Because Christ is good and faithful. 
and he will do what he promised. Now do you have greater hope? That's the point. That your hope would increase. That your faith would increase. Back to our text in verse 17. So, when God desired to show more convincingly, now, I, I almost smile because what could he do more convincingly? He said it, that's it. But here's the condescension of God. This is where God, in a way, humbles himself to, to speak on our level because that's the real problem. He wants to speak more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's those who have faith, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He does what? Notice this. He guarantees it with an oath. Does God have to make an oath in the promise? No. He makes an oath just to help us understand uncertainty because somehow in our mind we might think that God would change his. And so notice what the preacher says. Now there's two things, two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. He's also taken an oath. Didn't have to because he doesn't lie, but he does. So those of, we, of us who fled to refuge have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. <clears throat> That's the, the, the perseverance, if you will, the certainty of his hope. Now, I've thought through this oath. What oath has he made? He made a pledge, of course, to Abraham. Surely, I will bless you, and in you all nations will be blessed as we've Unpack that to understand. But I think in this oath, this guaranteed, is more than what he said and revealed to us. I'd argue that this oath that he gives is the guarantee that he has granted to us in sending the Holy Spirit. He gives his word, and he gives himself in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I'll just read a few passages for you to save time. You just listen. 2 Corinthians 1.22 Speaking of God, who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You got a seal, you got a guarantee. What's the warranty? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God Himself. Second Corinthians five five. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Back to Ephesians chapter 1, where we were at earlier today. 1.14, speaking of the Holy Spirit, who is the, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire 
the possession of it to the praise of his glory. When a young man pledges to a young woman in marriage, in our culture, he gives a guarantee. In our culture, it's a ring. And she'll proudly wear it on her finger and be reminded of that promise of wedded bliss, that that covenant will be completed. God, who it is impossible for him to change his mind, a young man at the last minute or a young woman at the last minute, they might run. God will never run. And, and he has given the pledge, the confirmation, the guarantee, his oath. It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and it will be there sealed unto the day of redemption. Until you acquire that which he has promised. Doesn't have to give proof, but he does. And he does so in the Holy Spirit. MacArthur explains it this way, concisely and well, so I'll read him. God's own spirit comes to indwell the believer and secures and preserves his eternal salvation, the sealing of which Paul speaks refers to an official mark of identification placed on the letter, contract, or other document. That document was thereby officially under the authority of the person whose stamp was on the seal. That's God's pledge, his oath. Four primary truths are signified by this seal, this oath. One is the security of it. Two is the authenticity of it. Three is the ownership of it. And finally, the authority of it. That's what God has done. In giving the Holy Spirit as a pledge of the believer's future inheritance in glory. Look at verse 18 if you're in our text, Hebrews 6. God has promised, he has said, he has given his oath. And why does he do it? So that those who have, note the word, fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast of that hope to the end. This concept of refuge reminds particularly these Hebrew saints of the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. If you're reading through the Old Testament, you'll find them. These were cities that were established to find safety for those who unintentionally killed somebody else, and yet under the law they would have died for manslaughter. They could flee to the city of refuge. That's the imagery there. They, they have a just penalty that is due, but there was a place of refuge they could go to. And that functions also as a symbol or a type of Jesus Christ. A just penalty to which you are due, you will flee to refuge. And that's why this oath is made, that God has promised that you indeed will find refuge in him spiritually. And the call then is to, to, to hold fast in the 
In the Old Testament economy, those who fled to refuge, to these cities of refuge, had to hold fast. If they left the city, they were dead. The law would come down on them. But in that refuge, they could find safety. And can I tell you this? There's no safety outside of Christ. That has been his emphasis and his warning up to this point, hasn't it, about spiritual apostasy. Where are you going to go? You're going to leave the refuge? You're going to leave the safety of the city of Christ? You, you, you don't realize you have an enemy who desires only to destroy you, to sift you like wheat? You would leave the, the safety of Christ? It is for strong encouragement that this oath and pledge has been made that you would have hope, that you would hold fast to that hope. And as I mentioned, it, hope in this promised sense of God is, is, is not just a temporal reprieve, it's eternal. The hope is the promises of the riches of God in Christ Jesus. Paul would tell the church at Colossians 1.5, the hope you have laid up for you in heaven. In 1.23, he calls then the people to continue in faith and hold steadfast from that hope of the gospel which they have. In our world, hope is, can be fleeting. We want things to happen. It can be wishful thinking. When God has made a promise and given us a hope, it is absolutely certain. It is certain because he has said it, and it's certain because he has sealed it with the guarantee of his spirit. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that we would imitate as well those who flee to you for refuge and find their hope in you and you alone. Give us strength to truly believe, to endure whatever we might face in this life with a great smile of internal, eternal joy in our heart because of the hope that we have in you, a steadfast anchor of the soul. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, I'm going to give you a moment just to reflect and think privately on these things in a meditative way. Do so now. If you need to respond to Christ at this moment, do so. Take a moment privately where you're at.
Oh, Father, thank you for the promises that you have granted to us in Christ Jesus. May we with great joy endure to the end. And with great joy share that glorious truth with all that we come into contact, not just this day, but in the days ahead. May you be glorified in all we do. In Christ's name, amen. Spirit and our life, John 6, 63. Let's all stand and turn to 338 wonderful words of life. Six, or 338. bow our heads and pray and we'll be dismissed. I'd like to leave us with uh, some of the <clears throat> praises from Apostle Paul, who is the master of the run-on sentence. So <clears throat> let's go ahead and, and pray. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened through pow with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. Amen.